Father, we're thankful for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We're thankful, Lord, that in spite of the fact that we are sometimes discomforted by rain and cool weather, we know we need the moisture and we're grateful, Lord, for your provision. We know that you send the rain on the just and the unjust alike because you're a God of mercy. And Father, we're so grateful that as we walk in it, we know that we are by the blood of Jesus Christ, the just. And Father, even though many times we don't feel very just, we know we have been justified by what Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, it is in his, uh, in his name that we come to you this morning and ask that you will speak to us through your word, that you will work in us what is needed in each of us. We know, Lord, that we have never arrived at a place where we don't need God's continued touch on our life. And so, Lord, today we just commit ourselves uh, to you. Pray that your spirit will guide our thoughts and our understanding. Bless each one here in this room today according to your divine plan in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like if we could this morning to turn back to the 11th chapter of Judges and begin reading at verse 12. Judges 11:12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, Therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Moab, and uh, the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped beyond the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, and uh, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people and camped in Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon in its villages, and in Aror in its villages, and in all the cities there on the banks of the Arnon, three hundred years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, 
judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. What we have in that passage, of course, is a very well done recounting of the history of Israel during the period of the wilderness wandering, at least from the time they arrived at Kadesh until they penetrated the land. Jephthah was obviously a student of his own history, and even though he had been forced to flee his land and live in the land of the Aramaeans for a while, that is in Syria, he still, of course, prided himself on his knowledge of the history of the Israelite nation. What we find in this particular passage is that in his first act as Shofat, Jephthah has finally been talked into coming down from Tob, where he had fled, by the elders of Gilead, and he has moved down here to Mizpah, and the first thing he does is attempt to avoid bloodshed. I'm here to lead Israel in battle, but what if we don't need to fight? Wouldn't it be good if there didn't have to be a battle? Therefore, he sent this letter, which we read, or actually several communications back and forth between him and the king of Ammon. And he asked him why he was attacking Israel. And of course, the king of Ammon gave his reason, and that was that Israel was occupying a land which they had taken away from Ammon, and he wanted the land back. Well, it became quite evident to Jephthah that this man was, was actually looking for a territorial aggrandizement because Moab, uh, Ammon had never possessed the land of Gilead. It had never been part of their possession. It had been in the hands of the Amorites, not in the hands of the Ammonites. So Jephthah explained very quickly as we read through this passage uh, how Israel obtained Gilead and from whom Israel had obtained Gilead. And it had, did not include the Ammonites. In fact, he mentioned that God would not allow us to attack the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites because all three were related to Israel. They had to go around the land. They had to march clear out into the desert around Edom and around Moab and then come back into the land or at least to the Gilead area of the land from the east, from the desert, and they had to kind of sneak in between the land of the Ammonites and the land of the Moabites in order to do this. And so he emphasizes that Israel did everything they could to not transgress any land of Ammon or Edom or Moab. And so as a result of this presentation, he then asked the king of Ammon four questions, which we ended class with last time. Let me just reiterate them briefly from the passage. He says, since the Lord gave the land of the Amorites to Israel, why should we give it to you? Secondly, he said, why, since the land in which you live has been given to you by your God, Chemosh, and Yahweh has given us Gilead, what makes you think that we should give what God has given to us to you? And then thirdly, he asked, if the Moabites, who had a better claim on Gilead than you ever had, didn't contest it, what right do you have to contest it? And then lastly, if this land was rightfully yours, why have 300 years passed without you ever contesting our possession of it before this moment? Well, there is no good answer to any of those questions that the Ammonites can give. So, the Ammonite king, as we read in verse 28, simply said, or, or simply disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. In other words, I don't care about your questions, I don't care about your message, I'm deep sixing the whole thing, uh, we want the land. Well, all of this was very important for Jephthah to do because this meant that any war that now followed 
would be a war in which Israel was absolved of any blame. Israel could not be looked upon as an aggressor. It would be a just war on the part of Israel. If you look down through the pages of history, century after century, you'll find there haven't been very many just wars. Most wars have been fought on the whim of, of, of some megalomaniac like Napoleon or Hitler. Wars have been fought for territorial expansion. Uh, wars have been fought for wealth. Rarely have wars been fought for any really truly justifiable mean reason. Uh, sometimes one side has a justification in that they were attacked by the other side without any provocation. <coughs> but in sense of the whole war being just, you find that to be rare. Now in this case, obviously, the justness was on the side of Israel and the injustice was on the side of the Ammonites. But what we discover here is that in verse 27, Jephthah makes a very, very wise decision. He, he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. And then he says, and this is what he's doing. He's committing it all to God. He says, may the Lord, and now he calls the Lord the supreme shofat, the judge. Judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. We'll let God be the decider, which is really the court of highest appeal. And of course, the court where we should leave all major decisions, and many times pretty minor ones too, need to be left into the hands of the supreme shofat. What this is doing, of course, is making this event clearly a supernatural contest. Obviously, it's going to be Gileadites fighting with spears and swords and bows and arrows against Ammonites. But the real battle is a spiritual battle. It's between Yahweh, God of Israel, and Chemosh, the God of the Ammonites to demonstrate who is truly God. In other words, the God of heaven against the God of this world. The, the same pairing that uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, made so obvious in his City of God, where he talks about the City of God being the, the true church, God's people on earth, and then the City of Man being, of course, the city uh, controlled by the evil one and, and the city that is dominated by the forces of evil. Now, those in Israel who truly trusted the Lord knew that when, when Jephthah made this commitment that it really was all over for the Ammonites except for the actual fighting itself. Certainly, many in Israel weren't so sure about that, and the Ammonites were, of course, full of bluster and expected that they would win. Jephthah was very logical and, and accurate in his recounting of the events, but it made no impact on the king of the Ammonite. Ammonites. And the reason was he felt he had the advantage. He, he just felt like Jephthah was blowing smoke here. Jephthah is trying to create a situation in which oh, I'll feel like I should go ahead and negotiate when I have the advantage. In other words, he thought Jephthah was arguing from a point of weakness rather than a point of strength. He thought he had an advantage over Israel for probably at least a couple of reasons. First, he either had never heard or certainly did not believe that the God of Israel was, was great enough to actually do the miracles that supposedly he had done to bring Israel out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. He, he probably had heard the legends, but thought of them as just legends and, and no longer considered them. I mean, 300 years have passed. 
and he probably didn't consider them to be true. Or maybe more so, he looked at the recent history of Israel and he saw how Israel had been oppressed by one nation after the other and how Israel lost battles and Israel lost territory. Obviously, Israel had compromised itself and, and part of the Israelites were actually worshiping their god, Chemosh. Therefore, why would Yahweh pay any attention? If, if he knew anything about Yahweh, he knew that Yahweh was an exclusive god. And therefore, I think he believed that Israel was weak, that the God of Israel, if he was strong, was not going to help them, and uh, that probably the God of Israel wasn't so great anyway. Little did he know what difference repentance made, what difference commitment to obedience made, that the God of Israel was a God of mercy. And when his people came to him, he restored them to himself and restored his power through their lives. Therefore, the king of Ammon was in big trouble and didn't even know it. The price he would pay was very large, as we'll see. Let's read on into the next few verses here, verse 29 of Judges 11. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if thou wilt indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karaman. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. One of the distinguishing features of the Shofat was the rushing upon him of the Spirit of the living God to empower him to do the work that God had called him to do. And the Spirit of God, as we see in this passage, came upon Jephthah in, in order to enable him to lead Israel, to have the mind of the Lord in what he did, and to have the following that he was going to need to carry out the battle. In this case, of course, the Spirit came upon him so that he would have or would be able to lead Israel to victory over the Ammonites. Again, the battle would have seemed, of course, to Jephthah and to those that were following him as a physical battle. They were ready to actually go out and hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Ammonites. But, as I've already noted, it truly was a spiritual battle. It was spiritual warfare. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, of course, would be absolutely crucial. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, Israel didn't stand a chance because the forces of hell were with the Ammonites. Jephthah was a valiant warrior. We're told that. And uh, he had led men before. He'd been a kind of a mercenary commander. But he knew that what he was embarking upon was a just cause. And he knew that he had committed himself and, and the work that he was leading uh, Israel into to the Lord. And so he was trusting in the Lord. But he still felt it was important to reinforce his dependence upon the Lord. For the Lord to understand fully that he was committed to him and that if God would give him victory, he would give God a sacrifice. He would give God a burnt offering of whatever it would be that would come first out of his door at home to meet him 
when he returned after the victory over the Ammonites. Well, all, most of us, of course, know the events that will transpire in the future, and so we, we might think this was a pretty silly thing for him to say. But of course, in his mind, he was thinking of the uh, prized animals that were in his possession. Remember, Jephthah was not a herdsman. Jephthah was not a farmer. We have no reference in Scripture to him doing anything except being a leader of a band of brigands, a kind of a mercenary commander. So what animals he had probably were, a f were just few, and they were probably almost like pets that lived in and out and around his house and courtyard. It was very common in those days for the animals, especially the more prized animals, to live in the compound with the house. And the lower floor of the house usually was open to their run through, running in and out whenever they wanted to anyway. So the animals almost became like uh, members of the family in terms of, of, of a few sheep, a few goats, whatever it was. And, and certainly this was in his mind, you know, his prized sheep, his prized goat, whatever it would be. <clears throat> Uh, he'd be willing to give that to the Lord. Now, to you and to me, I suppose we'd have to translate that to uh, our pet dog or a pet cat. You know, we'll sacrifice that. And, of course, somebody who might have a particular animal they're, they're very fond of might say, oh, horrors, I would never do that. But the, the idea is this was a significant thing. It wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to go pick one of the animals out of the 3,000 sheep that I haven't sacrificed to you, Lord. Well, you know, that happens all the time anyway, so that would not have been any big deal. Well, after recruiting the army, and we're told that he went through Manasseh and he went through Gilead. Gilead roughly corresponds to the tribal area of Gad. Jephthah led his forces across through Mizpah and then up the hill over to the east towards Rabbah Ammon to engage the Ammonites. It's very important to note that the victory that was won was not a victory that was gained because Jephthah was a brilliant commander. It was not a victory that was gained because Israel was such a great warlike people because, as you know, through the history of Israel, they have not tended to be a very warlike people. They were keepers of vines and keepers of figs and keepers of sheep and plowers of the ground. And generally speaking, when battle took place, they had to go out and recruit an army and, and get that army ready and go fight. They didn't have a large standing army. In fact, it won't be really until the days of David that Israel has any really significant standing army at all. During the days of the judges, they didn't have any standing army because they had no center of government. Each tribe was a tribe unto itself. And they just kind of came together to, to deal with a common enemy. And in this case, we're only dealing with an enemy that is on the east side of the Jordan, an enemy that's a threat to Gilead or the tribe of Gad, to some extent probably the tribe of Reuben, which was just south of Gad. Uh, and, you know, by extension, maybe to Manasseh too, the southern end of the tribal part of Manasseh. So those three tribes were at the most involved in this fighting. Now, we do remember, of course, that the passage in the 10th chapter said that the Ammonite attacks did carry across the Jordan from time to time, and they had impacted the tribal area of Ephraim and uh, of Judah. But they do not play any role in this. There's no mention of Ephraim or Judah, except a little bit later we're going to get to Ephraim, in this whole thing. So, how many men are we talking about? Scripture gives us no number. Probably a few thousand Gileadites and men of Manasseh are involved in this Israelite army. How large was, large was the army of Ammon? We're not told that either. Probably again, a few thousand. This would be fitting with approximately the tribal sizes of that particular time. You know, and, and for the most part, we have to remember that at least in the case of the Israelites, these men 
were men who were not accustomed to fighting. And so they had to kind of get all in, uh, get their enthusiasm up again and learn how to use their weapons all over again before they could go into battle. The source of the victory is clearly identified in the passage of Scripture because in verse 32 it says, So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. The Lord gave them into his hand. Crossed over what? Crossed over. Well, not the Jordan, because the recruits he had recruited were already on the east side of the Jordan. So what he crossed over was the Jabbok. The Jabbok is the river that comes right down out of the central highlands of Gilead and enters into the Jordan about midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Jabbok, because it comes down out of a relatively steep escarpment, uh, is a fairly deep valley. And the further you go back into the hills, the deeper the valley gets. So they crossed further down. Mizpah was located maybe 10, 12, 14 miles uh, east of the Jordan, uh, but not at the point where the Jabbok would get, its, get to be the deepest gorge it could become. So they crossed over the Jabbok and, and moved to, the, to what would be known as the southeast to attack uh, the Ammonites who were penetrating Gilead from their territory, which was way over on the eastern edge. All of what we're talking about today is in the modern country of Jordan, King Hussein's land. Except, of course, King Hussein is gone, but his son's land. What we have here is, of course, a great victory. We're, we're not given any details of the battle. We're simply told the parameters of the destruction. The Ammonites were, were put to flight right away. They were forced to, to, to flee from Israel. They were slaughtered. And the scripture tells us that the Israelites then overran 20 cities that belonged to the Ammonites. All the way from the Arnon in the south. The Arnon is a river that comes in to the Dead Sea about midway on the east side. About halfway up the Dead Sea, the Arnon comes in from the east side. And, and south of that is the land of the Moabites. North of that was the tribal area of uh, Reuben. So we're talking about east now, further east than the Reubenite area. And so they're striking these people all the way down to Arar, which is just north of the Arnon River, over to the east of the Moabite territory. And then, of course, all the way up to Rabbah Ammon, and out to Minnith, which was on the edge of the desert. So a region over there that the Ammonites was their true uh, tribal territory. This was the territory that was being overrun by Israel. There is no indication that this was a difficult victory. Uh, it seems that the Ammonites were put to flight very quickly, that their cities were subdued with relatively little difficulty. We're not told the extent of the slaughter, except that it says very great slaughter. So we assume that thousands and thousands were slain in the conquest that took place. What did this prove? Well, this proved, again, as Scripture constantly demonstrates, that the gods of this world are no gods at all. That Chemosh was unable to withstand the, the assault of Yahweh's people. That the children of the living God have nothing to fear from the evil one, from the God of this world that when we walk in faith and in obedience, the victory is ours. The enemy cannot resist. He will be put to flight. And so when there does seem to be 
resistance. There does seem to be victory in the part of the God of this world. It's generally because God's people are either not trusting, not obeying, or not praying. And as a result, there is no strength of God in the work that is being done. It's one of the reasons why we feel it's, and I'm, I know you do too, or you wouldn't even be here, uh, that it's important that we pray for our missionary friends because we are, are those who help them stand strong against the attacks of the evil one. And the evil one is very, very active right now in many parts of the world and right here in Redding, California. So we need to be people of prayer. And what is interesting is that obviously Chemosh was made absolutely helpless by God in, in this battle. Paul makes it very clear in, the, in 1 Corinthians that pagan gods are backed by demons that the idols of the pagans are actually empowered by demons. Demons, of course, have no power in the face of the living God. And so the demon behind Chemosh was put to flight by the forces of God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit upon Jephthah. As we read in uh, the 8th chapter of Romans, the 31st uh, verse, If God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Now, of course, God is for us when we're doing His will. God is for us when we are seeking His face in the doing of His will. And that's why Israel had this great victory that day. Well, let's read on to what is, of course, the most controversial part of the whole story of Jephthah. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing, now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, Father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The elders of Gilead had promised Jephthah that if he would lead them in battle, he could also lead them in peace. He extracted that vow from them before he ever left. Tob, because he had been stabbed in the back as it were before, and he was not about to have that happen again. And so now he has moved from Tob to, to Mizpah. He has moved his whole family to Mizpah, and he is living at Mizpah. He has a house in Mizpah. We have no idea who Jephthah's wife was. She is not named. We are not told when he acquired her. If he married her before he left the land of Gilead, then she was probably an Israelite, probably a Gileadite. However, if he met her and married her when he was in Tob, she was probably an Aramean. All we are told is that he had only one child, a girl, who was not quite old enough for marriage. 
So here we have Jephthah returning from battle. He is flushed with the emotion of overwhelming victory. I mean, God had just decimated the enemy and it could not have been a more complete victory than the victory he experienced in the defeat of the Ammonites. He was, of course, returning home and I, in his mind this thing was playing through. He was committed to carrying out his vow in honor to the Lord. He was filled with thanksgiving to the Lord. And uh, he was fully expecting, of course, a prize sheep or goat to come out the gate. But his joy turned to sorrow when the first one to meet him coming out of the house door and out of the gate was his own only daughter. Of course, she was watching for her father. You know, the news had carried, the victory was great, and the army was coming home, and so she was watching for her father to come home. And when she saw him, she skipped out the door, dancing and singing, playing her tambourines, uh, running to see her father. She, of course, could not understand her father's response. Rather than running to her and catching her up in his arms, as he probably had done many times in the past, he tore his clothes, which is the typical sign of mourning and distress. She had never produced that response in him before. And she was totally mystified by his reaction. She did not understand until he explained to her the vow that he had made. Uh, but what is really amazing about this whole account is her response. Remember, she's 12 maybe, 13. She's a very young girl. And her response is absolutely incredible as you read it there. She was in full submission to her father and to God. Whatever you must do, Father, whatever you have promised to God, you must do. I'm sure she was shocked, of course, by what she heard from him, by the sudden turn of events. And of her response, however, demonstrates a maturity beyond her years. Amazing how that is sometimes. Out of the mouth of babes oft times comes wisdom. And out of the mouth of this child comes a demonstration of maturity that was very unusual for someone of her age. She understood, of course, the gravity of her father's vow, and she understood the victory, of the importance of this victory that her father had helped to win over the enemy. Now, what does it all mean? This passage is ambiguous enough that many scholars have interpreted this passage as referring to human sacrifice. That, you know, he'd said he would offer a burnt offering of whoever came out, and that it, this is what he actually did. If so, if this actually happened, then Jephthah's fear of offending God by breaking his vow was compensated by his offense to God by making a human sacrifice. In the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy, we discover that God calls the sacrificing of sons and daughters an abominable act. And he said to Israel, you shall not behave thusly towards the Lord your God. Point, period, end of comment, no loopholes. Interestingly enough, Josephus, now I like Josephus most of the time, and Josephus often gives us a little bit of uh, insight into this, but Josephus says Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering, even though he says, interestingly enough, that it was not conformable to the law nor acceptable to God. Which, of course, if were true, uh, would put Jephthah in extremely bad light. Even the great Martin Luther, 
founder of the Reformation, claimed that no matter what the problems are with the, with the concept, the text is clear. He sacrificed his daughter. However, for some very fundamental reasons, I think that is a very uh, inappropriate interpretation of the passage. First of all, as we go back to verse 29 of this passage, we find here that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Subsequent to that, he makes the vow. So he makes the vow after he is already empowered and infilled with the Holy Spirit. He made the vow thus in the strength of the Lord and under the guidance of his Spirit. Now certainly Jephthah was thinking, goat, sheep, when he made the vow, but God knew who would come out that door first. Nothing catches God by surprise, and that's important for us to always remember. And since human sacrifice was a pagan, abominable thing in the eyes of God, he would not have allowed, this is my belief, he would not have allowed that daughter to come out that door if he knew that he would sacrifice his daughter. Now, let me, let me tell you what scholars who interpret this uh, passage as human sacrifice uh, say about this. They say that he made an unnecessary rash vow, that the vow he made was not under divine guidance, and that he was foolish enough to carry it out. Well, let me give you another reason why I don't think he burned his daughter. As you look at the end of this passage, verses 37 through 40, we find that the emphasis of this passage is not upon the death of the girl. It is upon her virginity. This is the emphasis. It's mentioned several times, and it's reinforced by the statement in verse 39, and she had no relations with a man. Well, what's the point of saying this over and over and over and over again? I mean, you know, uh, there, there would be no point of it, because once said, I mean, we understand, you know, what, what's being said there. So what I'm saying is that the sacrifice being described here in verse 39 is not an offering, a burnt offering, but it is the sacrifice of a life of perpetual celibacy. She is being committed to live the rest of her life as a virgin, as a reminder in all of Israel of the great victory that God had given to them over the Ammonites. Now we might say, well, is that much of a sacrifice? Well, <laughs> most... Yeah, and, and that's very good. That's, that's the real point of the thing. Jephthah has no other children, unless, of course, another one comes along later, but there's no record of, of that. He is, his only child is a, is a daughter. His only hope for posterity is through her. She's the only one that can bear him grandchildren. And as, as Dr. Walmark is saying, in that society, in those days, kids were a big deal. Not just because they enjoyed having them, but that's your future. That's your posterity. That's your remembrance. Some of these judges, as we've already read and will read, had like one case we'll be coming to. The guy had 60 kids, you know, and <laughs> you figure 30 daughters and 30 sons, and they all get married, and they all have, I mean, you know, how would you even remember their names? <laughs> You're one of my kids? <laughs> and of course, once you get the grandkids, forget it, you know. Yeah, I mean, after looking at the story of Leah and Rachel, and Jacob's situation there, we wonder why anybody would have multiple spouses. Anyway, to preserve the family. Look at how far Lot's daughters went. 
to preserve their, I mean, why did Lot's daughters have an incestual relationship with their father? For posterity. They didn't do it because they just wanted to be pregnant. They were thinking of their father's posterity. And they didn't want him to be with no children. No, I mean, no grandchildren, no, nothing to carry on. So look how far they went. How far did they go? Now, it's true that probably incest was not looked upon quite uh, the way it is today. <laughs> it's funny, in, in my teaching at the college, I, I teach about some of these European dynasties, you know, and we start talking about the marriage of double first cousins, you know, to each other, and the kids all go, ooh, you know, <laughs> where the both sides of both children are related to each other, you know, and it's a wonder they had some pretty odd people who came out uh, down the line. I think there's a third reason, though, a third factor that plays into this, too. If Jephthah had done the abominable thing, that's a hard word, abominable, uh, if he had done that in, in violation of the absolute law of God against such a thing, would he be proclaimed as one of the great men of faith? I kind of doubt it. He's, his name, however, is in the Hall of Faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Let me read uh, verses 32 through 34 of Hebrews 11, where in enlisting all of these great men and women of faith, the writer says, And what more shall we say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and so forth. Now, of course, you could say, well, look at David. You had a lot of wives. He got in trouble. And, and look at Samson. You know, what kind of guy was he? You know, God alone knows how to classify uh, sins. And uh, we have our own tendency, you know, today to classify one sin as more evil than another. John? I like I read something. might have been sent to serve at the tabernacle. Well, that's a, that's a might, of course. Um, there's no scriptural record of that, but it's a possibility, sure. What we're going to see is, of course, that her, her act was commemorated four days a year uh, in perpetuity down through the centuries by, by uh, the young ladies of the society. And it could be that that would be a very logical thing for her to do, is go down and be there where she could serve. But, but even if not, just the knowledge of what she had done became widespread and just her very existence became an inspiration. It's like looking at the story of Joan of Arc. And of course, we've seen various permutations of that recently. But Joan of Arc's greatest contribution to the French cause was simply the fact she became a mascot on their behalf, especially after she was dead. She became this, this, this one for whom they would fight. And uh, so it would be, I think, for Jephthah's daughter, whatever degree she served, maybe in the tabernacle, whatever else, it's, it's the remembrance of what she did that had the great impact upon Israel. I think that it's very important for us to understand the sovereignty of God in all of this. Uh, bad things happen and God allows bad things, but this man has served in God's strength. He has just accomplished something great for the Lord. I, I don't think the Lord's going to allow him to just turn around and do something as vile as could possibly be. I mean, that is an act more heinous than the, than the standard practice of the Ammonites he had just destroyed. 
Now, according to verse 37, Jephthah's daughter requested two months' leave uh, to get away with her best friends and to emotionally work through her grief. They went away into the hills where she could be away from the public and she and her, her friends could just cry out loud, let their emotions pour forth, and she could cry out to the Lord. Concerning, of course, what would be to her a great loss too. We have to understand that every single Israelite girl's dream was to become a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. They didn't have the options we have today of becoming a CEO of a corporation. You know, there, were, there was really only one option. You either lived in your father's household as an unclaimed blessing, or you became a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. And that was it. There weren't any other choices. And so she would be sacrificing virtually everything that gave a woman a sense of worth in that society. Some might even consider hers a fate worse than death. I think not, but some might. Well, let me just end with this clause or this little statement from Kylan Delich, the great 19th century German commentators. They say this, the further clause in the account of the fulfillment of the vow, and the clause is, and she knew no man, is not in harmony with the assumption of a sacrificial death. This clause would add nothing to the description since it was already known that she was a virgin. The words only gain their proper sense if we connect them with the previous clause, he did with her according to the vow which he had vowed, and understand them as describing what the daughter did in fulfillment of the vow. The father fulfilled his vow upon her, and she knew no man. That is, he fulfilled the vow through the fact that she knew no man, but dedicated her life to the Lord as a spiritual burnt offering in lifelong chastity. And to me, that makes all kinds of sense and totally fulfills the passage and the promise that Jephthah had made and is, is just congruent with God's Spirit being upon Jephthah. That what she agreed to was extremely unusual is indicated by the fact that it became a custom for the young Israelite women once a year for four days to commemorate Jephthah's daughter's sacrifice in becoming a perpetual virgin on behalf of the vow that her father had made. Well, next week we'll pick up with the 12th chapter of the book of Judges.